for, for the last hundred years or so, we thought Pluto was a planet. And so when you were in fifth grade, that's what you were taught. You were taught Pluto was a planet. Now, the, the cool story behind Pluto, and I know all of you are like, oh, yeah, I want to hear this story. It's very cool. Was uh, they thought there were only the, uh, the eight planets up to Neptune. And then some astronomer with a powerful telescope, he looked in there and he saw a wobble in the orbit of Neptune. Wobble, that's the scientific term, the astro- astronomical term. I don't even know if that's a word. And uh, he thought, well, so- somebody surmised that there's got to be something past that. And so they, they, they didn't know what it was. They couldn't see it. But they surmised that it would be Planet X. And that sounds super cool. It sounds like a great movie, Planet X. But you couldn't see it. But you could only see uh, its effects on Neptune. And so they were like, there's, you know, there's got to be something big just past there. So there's got to be this Planet X. And then, then somebody got a really powerful telescope. And then they saw, well, there's Pluto out there. That must be it. That must be the thing causing the wobble in Neptune. And then some smart guy who could really do math, none like me, was like, that can't be right. It can't be. Neptune can't be this thing causing this because it just doesn't have enough gravitational pull. It can't be causing this effect on it. So we can see the effect, but we can't see the object. It can't be Neptune. And so they, they begin to guess that there was something even more out there. And they discover there's this whole belt around our solar system, and it's got all kinds of planet-like objects in it, thousands of objects in it, and Pluto is the, just the largest of them. And so they, they figured out that these things were there, not by being able to look through a telescope and see them, but by observing the effect that they had on the objects around them. In fact, and I think this is pretty cool, the most powerful force in space are black holes, And nobody has seen a black hole. The only way that they know that they're there is by observing the effect that they have on the objects around it. Now think about this. If you want to take a really quick spiritual transition, the most powerful force in the universe cannot be seen, but can only be observed by its effects on the things around it. I should just go home right now. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I thought I was, I was working on this sermon. I was like, that's my intro. I should just, I got to stop there. It's all downhill from there. By observing what can be seen, you can discover what can't. By observing what can be seen, you can discover what can't. Now, I think this is important because as we're in this series, we're in this series called Pure and Simple. And, and it's this idea where we just, you know, as humans, we just let our lives get all like distracted and cluttered and just worked up. And we just need to take a deep breath and return to what really, truly matters in life, what, what really is most important. And we, we made the case last week that what is most important in life is devotion to God. And I know you might be sitting here in the room and you might be like, that's not what's most important to me. But that's truly, whether or not you agree with it or realize it or understand it or have like cultivated that in your life yet, that is truly what is most important in our life, that, that devotion to God. Now... We use the verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You know this verse, either he will hate the one and he will love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Most of us, because we're not diving into pools of money, Scrooge McDuck style, just swim right past this verse and don't think about what Jesus is actually saying here. The underlying principle is this. No one can serve two masters. That's the principle. You cannot be devoted to anything else 
and God. That's not the way that this works. So we have to figure out what uh, to what are we devoted. We have to discover what is at the center of our lives. We have to figure out what is the thing around which my life orbits. What is there at the center? Jesus says you can't actually see what's at the center, but the way you discover what is at the center of your life is observing its effect on the things around you. Just like with a telescope and just like discovering planet X. You observe the effect on the things around you. By observing what can be seen, you discover what cannot be seen. Jesus actually said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The thing that you're devoted to. Where your treasure is. Where you're... So he was saying you can't just like say, well, the most important thing in the world to me is whatever. He says you have to look at your credit card statement. You have to look at your bank statement to see what sorts of things take your treasure, the things that that matter to you. He said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he says, where the mouth speaks, or for what the mouth speaks, what the heart is full of. So you have to look at your conversations. Like, what do your texting conversations reveal that your heart is full of? Is it like graciousness and kindness and goodness? Or is there something else there? Is there judgmentalism in there, deep inside there? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, he says, by their fruit. And this is just another illustration of saying it's the things that you could see on the exterior that reveals what's on the inside. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And so what we need to understand, and this is just a, you know, it's a basic principle, simple, but, but we need to know this. Our devotion to Christ is observed by our obedience to Christ. Our devotion is observed by our obedience. Now, this is going to get interesting because I think that we know the right answer, correct? We know what should be at the center of our lives. All things being equal, if we're in a Bible class on a Sunday morning, we know what the right answer is, Jesus. But I want to know what is the real answer for us. What's the real answer? Not the right answer. Because sometimes knowing the right answer insulates us from applying the real answer. What is the real answer to what is at the center of our lives? How do we move Christ to the center? Now, if we think about this, the problem uh, with this is that we've got this word that's underlined over there, uh, uh, obedience. And I don't know about you, but obedience is not my favorite concept in the world. I don't, it's not, I I found, I was, I was struggling with this a little bit this week because I was trying to decide if I'm a rebel or a rule follower. Now, those of you that may know me, which, which do you think I am? Am I a rebel or am I a rule follower? Some of you are like, yeah, you're a rebel. Some of you are like, no, you're a rule follower. Yeah, I, I, it's very mixed. I'm mixed as well. I'm very confused. And here's how I know. is because I was going into Little Caesars this week to pick up a pizza, and there was somebody who had pulled their car in front of the store and turned their hazards on as if that allowed them to just park wherever they wanted. And I'm like, that's not the way it works. You have to park in a parking spot. Your hazards are not a parking spot. And I'm like, I'm a rule follower. And then I saw a wet paint sign and I touched the wall. And I'm like, I'm a rebel. I don't know. There's both of them in here. I've got, I've got, I'm I'm of two minds. But the word obedience puts us at an immediate disadvantage for this whole concept. Because I think wired into a lot of us, there's this instinctual aversion to obedience. As soon as someone says, even if you were going to do it, as soon as someone presumes to take authority and tells you to do it, you no longer want to do it. There's this weird sort of rebellion to this concept of obedience. Let me me illustrate it this way. Um, I was thinking about (laughs) 
I don't know why, our state motto, our state motto. Does anybody know what the Minnesota state motto is? Star of the North, but it's actually in French. I don't know why not Swedish. I mean, you'd think that would be Swedish, but it's in French, the Star of the North. I'm not going to pronounce it because I don't know how, Star of the North. And then I thought, well, you know, what are some of the other state mottos? Like, this might reveal a little bit about what we as Americans value. Uh, Does anybody know what New Hampshire's state motto is? You guys know. Wow. Live free or die. That sounds like people who want to turn hazards on in order to park wherever they want. Live free or die. I have a quarter in my pocket. I'll give you a quarter if you know this. Um, Does anybody know what the state motto of Alabama is? Nobody does. Yeah, I'm keeping my quarter. Came out ahead today. The state motto of Alabama is we dare defend our rights. Our rights. We dare defend our rights. I think they enacted this one after the Civil War, so there might be a... Mm. This, is, uh, this is one of my favorites. Does anybody know what Virginia's state motto is? It's Latin. Many of them are. It's Latin. Thus, always to tyrants. Sic semper tyrannis. Do you know where that statement comes from? Do you, anybody in the room know what John Wilkes Booth shouted after he had shot Abraham Lincoln? They shouted this. Does this sound like an obedient people? Does this sound like a people when you put a wet paint sign on a wall that they're not going to touch it? No. We are, as, as Americans, I think that we've kind of got like hardwired into our culture from birth that there is an aversion to obedience that no one should be able to tell us what to do. Uh, you know, our parents or, or even God. I think we have this idea that we're, we're, we're somehow just going to do what God wants. But no. I mean, when Jesus says no one can serve two masters, two masters, what are you talking about? I think zero masters is the way to go. I don't have any masters. I don't even like the idea. I don't even like the word. I don't even like thinking about myself in terms of having a master. And so I think before we can understand obedience as a reflection of devotion, I think we need to have um, a reshaping of our idea of obedience and what it is and what's going on and why God would command certain things to do and certain things to avoid. So I want to just give you a couple of, uh, of principles around obedience this morning as we work through this idea of what it means to obey in terms of our devotion. Our devotion to Christ is observed in our obedience to Christ. Think about when you first uh, got married, or if you're not married, you can imagine this scenario. Um, You're starting your new life together, two lives melding into one. It's all rainbows and unicorns. And then at some point, you discover that you and your spouse have drastically different ways of doing normal household chores. And there's no blending of the two. Now, I think they start small. I think there are things like you uh, you want to spend time with your your honey pie or whatever you call them, and you go to the grocery store and you're like going to get the eggs and the milk and then you're going over here to get the bread and your sweetie is going up and down every aisle. And you're like, what What are you doing? Well, this is how you shop. You go, you traverse every aisle and you see if there's anything you need. No, you don't. You go get what you want and then you leave the store. This may or may not have happened this week with... There's different ways. It's a different approach. Hey, we're all equal. That's fine. There's some things you can kind of let go. 
Wives, uh, do your husbands have a specific way of mowing the lawn that has to be just so? You have to mow a crosshatch pattern in the lawn. And one day you decided to surprise him by mowing the lawn before he got off work. And he came home and he was like, you could tell he was visibly like, uh, didn't know what to do. And he's like, well, thank you very much, honey, but we need the, the crosshatch pattern. Why do we need the crosshatch pattern? The grass is short. You don't need the crosshatch pattern. Short is what matters. Well, because it doesn't grow in the sunlight and whatever. And maybe they went out and mowed the crosshatch pattern in it that day anyways. And you're like, what is going on? This is ridiculous. Two ways of doing it. I didn't know there was more than one way to fold a towel. I didn't even know you folded towels. You dry off, you hang it up, and it's, you know, you're fine. Well, you don't, what, fold it for what reason? No, there's different ways to fold towels. And it needs to be done a certain way. Why does it need to be tri-folded? Well, because it's in the closet, and you organize it by the softness scale according to color. And you're like, it's in the closet. Nobody's going to see it. No, do it this way. Just do it this way. Please, please do it this way. This is not based on experience. I want to be clear. But I think that we have, we, we, have, we have to understand that there's these, these different ways that we do things, and sometimes they come into conflict with other people. If you're a kid at any point in your life, then you remember, like, when I grow up, I am going to stay up as late as I want, watching cartoons and eating sugary cereal. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. No parent is going to tell me what to do. Kids go along because they have to, and maybe you and your spouse, you're like, well, I'm just not going to mow the lawn. I'm just not going to go grocery shopping. I'm not going to avoid the towels so that you can get along because they have a way of doing things and it's just so and it's arbitrary and they can't explain it at its most basic obedience feels like someone else controlling us and someone else getting their way and i think we need to understand this about god god is not interested in our obedience for his benefit it is for our benefit God does not need the towels folded a certain way. He doesn't need a crosshatch pattern. I don't even know if that's the word. Uh, mowed into the lawn. He doesn't go grocery shopping a certain way. When he commands something, it's not for his, be, uh, his benefit. It's not like he needs the universe to just be aligned in a certain way. No, he's saying this is the best for you. It's for our benefit. And that's the premise where we just right off the bat, we get off on the wrong foot with God and obedience because we think it's something that God arbitrarily wants us to do. But no, it's for our benefit. Parents, you've seen this. You tell your kids you cannot go outside. It's negative 20 degrees without a coat. You cannot do that. Why? Oh, I, see, I saw this kid at school the other day and he was wearing shorts. I don't know what's wrong with his parents, but you can't do that. It's for your benefit. It's not for mine. Now, sometimes, parents, we do things that are silly and ridiculous. I get it. But we need to understand that God has something for us. And listen, when we rebel against obedience, we rebel against blessing. This is important. When we rebel against obedience, we rebel against blessing. Because God isn't asking us to live out his commands for his purposes, for his benefit. It's for ours. Let me give you an example. Deuteronomy chapter 8, all the way back in the Old Testament. And this is, you know the story, right? He led his people through the wilderness, out of Egypt and through the wilderness. They cried out, God, send us someone to save us from the Egyptians. We're slaves. We're your chosen people. Send someone. He sends Moses and he takes them. They, they you know, crossing the Red Sea, all that stuff. And then as Moses is kind of recounting this, look at this verse 15 in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness. This is God describing what God had done to his people. And he uses the word terrible. He led you to the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents. Wow, that doesn't sound good at all. 
I mean, that's why most of us live in Minnesota, because we don't want to live in a place where there's pythons and any fire-breathing anything, and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water. God, why did you do this? You were supposed to rescue us from Egypt and save us and bring us to blessing and bring us to a good life. Why did you do this? Verse 16, that he might humble you and that he might test you, listen, to do good for you in the end. What? You mean we have to go through something difficult to receive a blessing? We have to do something hard in order to benefit? Hmm, that's an interesting idea. God dramatically rescues his people, but allows them to go through difficulty for their good. God's goal was to bless his people, but that blessing could only come through obedience. Could only come through obedience. Dads, what do we say when things are hard and the kids complain? What does it build? Character. You've got to do it. It builds character. Sometimes we're making it up just because we don't want to spend more money on the heat. Cold builds character. But sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's true. We're building character and we know that there's difficulty that has to be pursued in order to see that character built. Obedience, before it's about behavior, is about trusting the character of God. About trusting the character of God. Second thing we want to talk about. I know um, a lot of you at this time of year are going through some life administration stuff. Maybe you're compiling information for your taxes. Um, One of the things that we have to do every year at this time is to re-enroll for our our health insurance through um, our our state exchange. And um, it's, there's nothing I hate more in the world, I think. You could ask my wife. I think it's my least favorite thing to do. And here's why. Um, Let me explain just real briefly. Because it's this, it's a slog of paperwork and being on hold. I mean, it's just a terrible way to spend any portion of your life. But every year, they ask me for a copy of my birth certificate. Every single year. What did you do with the one I sent you last year? Where did it go? Why don't you have it on file? And this is what really kills me because I know I'm a little, I'm venting here a little bit, but bear bear with me. You, the government, are requesting my birth certificate. Do you know where I got my birth certificate? What organization issued it? The government. Why don't you ask yourself for it? It's somewhere. You have it somewhere. Why do I have to make a copy and sign it in triplicate and send it to you by fax or whatever I've got to do? Pony Express. It's so ridiculous. And I get so frustrated and so annoyed. But every year, guess what? I obey. Why? Because I have to. There's no choice. I don't have any recourse. I don't get to do something else because I have to obey. There's no joy in it. There's no blessing in it. I guess health coverage is a blessing. But there's no, like, personal, like, oh, this is wonderful about my life and I'm building so much character. Actually, honestly, I have Kareem do a lot of this because it just gets me so worked up. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cause health problems if I don't have somebody help me out with it. But if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you've seen every variation and modification to obedience. You have seen obedience just to avoid trouble. You've seen that. It's like when you're driving down the highway and you're doing however much over and you see the state trooper on the side of the road and you hit the brakes and you go at the speed limit until you see that he hasn't pulled out of the middle of the highway to follow you and then once you're passed out of his sight, then you speed up again. That's obedience just to avoid trouble. Obedience when people are looking. Obedience, uh, I do what I want when they aren't. There's the obedience of convenience. I will go along 
as long as it's not out of my way. I will do what you want, God, as long as it doesn't disrupt any of my plans. God, if you ask me to go the direction I'm already going, then I'll obey. But if you ask me to go a different direction, I'm out. It's an obedience of convenience. Jesus called this type of of obedience first-mile obedience. First-mile obedience. You You know how this worked. The uh, Roman soldiers that occupied first century Israel, they could compel a citizen to carry their package, uh, their luggage for a mile. They could compel someone to do that. They could say, you, I'm going to disrupt your day. You have to go with me. They had to grit their teeth and do it. They had to make a copy of their birth certificate and send it in triplicate to the government. They had to do it. They did not have a choice. But what Jesus was interested in was second mile obedience. Devotion to God is second-mile obedience. And this is really important because second-mile obedience begins to differentiate between when we feel like we have to do it and when we feel like we want our lives to be devoted toward God. Second-mile obedience. This is what God is looking for in our lives. What do we do when obedience calls us to go out of our way for God? What do we do when obedience calls us to sacrifice? What do we do when obedience calls us to disrupt our carefully laid plans, to forgive when we do not believe that they deserve it, to be kind when we don't want to, to love when we don't like? What do we do with second-mile obedience? First mile, we have to. We don't have a choice. You do it or you're dead. Second mile, now we see who's really at the center of our lives. This brings us to the third element of obedience that we need to kind of change and rework in our minds. And this is the hard work of of rooting myself out of the center of my own life and putting Christ there. And this is going to be the hardest to hear for for some of us in the room as well. A uh, a cousin of mine shared a story about her son, and this is years ago when he was was five or six. And uh, it was morning and summer, and he had gotten up and he had eaten breakfast, and he was pretending to be a cowboy on the couch of the family living room. And he was, you know... Wrangling steer, whatever cowboys do. And his mom said, uh, hey, buddy, you need to uh, clean up your cereal bowl and put it in the sink. And normally he was a, he was a pretty compliant kid, but this morning he didn't, he didn't respond immediately. And she, you know how parents do. You say something and you kind of get distracted. She forgot, and a couple minutes later she realized that he hadn't, still hadn't done what she'd asked, which was a little unusual for him. So, listen, buddy, you need to put... Your bowl away. You need to put your bowl in the sink. And he hopped off the couch and he started messing with the couch some more. And she was like, this is very strange. Something, something odd. But, but she began, you know how parents, have, I don't know if you've ever done this, but your kids like exercise some defiance and it brings out something in you. And it began to bring that out in her a little bit. Like, oh, what is this kid doing? Why won't he, obey? he's a good kid. Why is he not obeying? And finally she's like, listen, you are about to get in trouble. If you do not put your bowl away. And he's there on the couch and he's pushing the couch and he's crying. And he says to his mom, I'm trying. And she's now very confused and then pauses and then begins to think about it for a second. And it all begins to make sense. Here is a little cowboy playing cowboy. And he was riding his bull, which was the couch. And she had told him to put his bull into the sink. And without hesitation, 
he hopped off the couch and began to try to push the catch, the kitchen or the, the, the family couch into the kitchen to put it in the sink. No leg discussion, no leg. Mom, is this really what you want me to do? Immediate obedience. And of course, mom immediately felt terrible because she maybe should have clarified. And the little, little boy, you know, there's some confusion. And sometimes parents, we get it wrong. Sometimes our kids are being obedient. We get upset and we confuse them. They aren't. But the thing that the, like the redemptive quality of this is this kid was trying to obey, trying to be, obey immediately, trying to do exactly what his mom wanted him to do. No questions asked. Like, oh, mom has lost it. She wants me to put the couch in the sink. I can't possibly do that, but I'm going to give it my best shot. What a great kid. Maybe not the sharpest kid, <laughs> but a great kid nevertheless. And I love that story because the deal is he fully trusts his mom. He assumes that if she's asking him to do this, then there's some way to do it. I don't see it, but there's some way to do it. This is going to be the hardest, and this is the hardest for me. And I want you to hear, uh, hear what I have to say in just, just hopefully the most humble way that I can say it. If obedience is about trust, then we can't make our obedience contingent on fully understanding and agreeing with God's commands. Amen. Now, I, I, as, I, as I'm working on this sermon, I feel the tension in myself. I feel it as I'm sitting in my office typing this out. Objection, 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 objection! I feel it, I feel it. Uh, uh, this single point could be an entire series of sermons because there are many bad ideas that Christian leaders, where they have misrepresented God and have, have exploited the sincerity of earnest, thoughtful people. This has happened. This happens. This continues to happen. There's gospels being preached out there that are false gospels. And there are people who are like, they don't know any better. And God, I believe God is totally fine with us saying, excuse me, God, did you say bowl or bowl? I just want to clarify here. I'm going to try to do what you say, but I just need to know exactly what you want me to do. I think God is totally fine with that. But all of us, whether we're kids or parents, we've all challenged our parents with a single word when our parents have asked us to obey. And we said, why? We were not clarifying. We were challenging their authority to command this. Do I agree with this command? Why do I have to do it? Why? I want to find out first if I agree before I obey. And this is so tough, I know. Feel free to double-check God. Feel free to clarify. Feel free to call out Christian leaders if they're teaching false doctrine. Feel free to do all that. But our obedience can't be contingent on our understanding. Because, listen, when we want our obedience and our agreement with God to be contingent on fully being able to wrap our minds around what God is commanding, we are saying that we are still the center of the universe. That we still want veto power in case we disagree or we find something too hard or too difficult. Now, could we talk about this for a long time? Absolutely. I, I trust that you get my heart when we say that we can't always wait till we understand God. Think about that. We can't wait till we understand God. <laughs> Can we fully understand God? No. I mean, that's... The book of Job, the last three or four chapters, is, you, you, you can't get me. I'm, <laughs> I'm ungettable. And sometimes we just have to obey because we trust God's character. So, do I actually trust God or do I trust my understanding of God? 
Now, there's so much more we could talk about with this whole issue. There's so much good stuff that I hope you can hash this out with your disciple groups this coming week. But I want us to remember that by observing what can be seen in our lives, we discover what can't be seen. And here's what we want to leave the room with. By observing our obedience, we can discover our devotion. How obedient are we truly? How devoted are we truly? We're going to continue to explore this theme of pure and simple devotion to Christ, but we got to know that obedience is one of those planets that we can see to see what is truly at the center of our lives. It's the means. It's not just can we see it, but it's the means by which we move Christ to the center of our lives by denying ourselves and submitting to him. God has always been looking for pure and simple devotion. That's what it's always been about. And it starts with obedience. As much as people who live free or die, six emperor tyrannus, two masters, we don't like that. But that's where it starts. So over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to offer a few more answers to this question. Next week, we're going to talk about worship without limits, that our idea of devotion is expressed in our worship. And then finally, uh, two weeks from now, we're going to talk about the idea of conviction without compromise. And that's the idea that, that our beliefs and these truths from God need to spread themselves into every corner of our lives. We are a people wrought with inconsistency. And God's truth needs to begin to permeate every corner of our lives so that we see that conviction of truth without compromise. So let's, as a people, let's be devoted and let's let it start with trusting the character of God in obedience.